Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains descriptions of sexual assault and stalking. The number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. The number for 1800 Respect is 1800 737 732. Please listen with care. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, I'm going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, how one policewoman's gut instinct helped catch a juvenile offender who was tormenting his neighbourhood and his own family. How odd is that, that you would put a lock on a kid's door to stop the brother going in there, it just, oh, it was just so bizarre. Former Detective Narelle Fraser dedicated much of her career to investigating homicide and missing persons, as well as child abuse and sex offences, successfully apprehending some of Australia's most dangerous criminals. She attributes the success to her innate intuition or her creep radar that she believes she and so many other women possess, as well as her inherent need to ask the questions no one else does. This unique skill set has given Narelle profound insight into the minds and behaviours of perpetrators of sexual crimes. It's near impossible to condense Narelle's 27 years on the force, as well as her incredibly valuable learnings, into just one episode. So, this chat is part one of two. To begin this episode, we go back to the early days of Narelle's career as a trainee detective with the Victorian Police. A case has been called in. It's a burglary, or as Narelle refers to it, a burg. The case file is peppered with details that no one but Narelle seems to be alarmed by. In particular, the actual item stolen, a young woman's underwear. It seems innocuous to the uniformed officers who were initially called to the scene. But Narelle's radar is immediately triggered by this instance of snowdropping. Why would somebody choose underwear to steal from a line? That is sexually motivated to me. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Slam dunk, 100%. Uh, My radar would go through the roof if I learned of a berg of, of what others might think of as a simple burg, oh, what was stolen and you read down and there's, I don't know, let's say a bra or like you say, underwear, whether it's from the line or from the clothes horse, I don't know. But any time something like that is stolen, to me, it shows it needs a bit more investigation. Going into a, a burg like that where underwear has been stolen, it sends shivers up my spine. And I think most poli- m- most women 
it's sort of really creepy, but it's hard to explain that emotion to a man because men don't have that generally. I don't know many men that have that, or he's, she's really creepy, or it's a, a difficult emotion to explain to a man because so many of them, particularly policemen that I've worked with, they just don't get that uneasy feeling like if somebody's walking behind them and they, like we, as women, you're very, very aware of who's walking behind you, if it's dark, you know, oh, I shouldn't go down that laneway, whatever, or somebody just walking behind you and you get, oh, you feel really creepy, like you think, oh my God, mm. I hope he's not going to attack me or something like that. Generally, men don't have that. Would you agree with that, Brent? Men don't oh, have one- that feeling? 100%, 100%. And it goes back to that term radar, doesn't it? That you, that, mm. that ra- the women's radars for this are far more attuned than men. And it's such a yeah. valid point that you make. You know, in, a, in another area of work that I work in, um, Narelle, I did deliver, have done for many, many years seminars on sexual crime and, and, and that type of thing. And so often young women mm. that I speak to who have experienced something like being confronted or something mm. like that. almost Stalking, ex- being yes. stalked or something. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Almost without exception, they will say, I just had this feeling there was this yeah. sense that something wasn't right. And yeah. I look yeah. behind me, you know, you can be in a crowded street, you can be in downtown Sydney at lunchtime and there's thousands yeah. and thousands of people, but women yep. will tell you, you just know when one of them is not quite right. You it's could be radar, sitting yeah, it? absolutely. You could be mm. sitting in a restaurant and you look across and this man, it's just this creepiness, like you think, oh my mm. God. Another offense <laughs> that can often be linked to what we're going to chat about in a moment with 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 a young offender like this is a, an offense which you and I would call, yeah, again, old-fashioned term peeping and pairing. This is somebody that, you know, going around looking in through windows, often looking into Mm. bedrooms or, you know, looking into homes where there are girls or women sort of uh, occupying the home. Peeping and peering would trigger that radar of yours, I'm I'm, I'm sure, Narelle. Yeah, I would refer to that in a legal sense as um, stalking. Yes. And that is, from my point of view too, that's a precursor to a much more serious offence. People Mm. generally stalk for a reason. It's not to look. They might masturbate watching somebody through a window and that will, more often than not in my experience, that will increase to Mm. a point where they then go into that house, they do the house entry rape or they, they attack somebody, you know, come out of the bushes or they follow them or... Oh, get me talking about stalking and you'll never get rid of me. There's there's a case that you worked on um, that very much um, falls under this umbrella. Uh, a case of a young a young boy, twelve around twelve years of age, stealing women's underwear and eventual you know, his eventual interview and, and treatment that he received. Can could I ask you just to walk us through that now? Because there's some really interesting points in this one. Yeah, sure. I became aware of what we have been talking about this morning of what was referred to as a burglary. And no other person's radar went up except mine. And the reason my radar went up was that the the victim was an, an 18-year-old woman, single, living in a, a flat, and her washing had um, been strewn down her driveway. Now, 
to me, I don't know about other people, but to actually uh, throw or uh, just put somebody's washing down the driveway, I just thought that was a bit unusual. A burg is generally somebody goes into the house, grabs what, you know, or grabs a, a stereo or whatever mm. it be, a bit of cash, and they leave. But this one, the person had been in the house, they'd got the washing and strewn it down the driveway. It just didn't make sense. Nothing else was missing. So I went around because I wanted to talk to this young girl because it concerned me. And just by spending a bit of time with her, she said that her drawers had also been ransacked. She hadn't reported it because she didn't think anything of it, and I completely get that. It was just a bit unusual, you know. But um, what happened was she told her parents a couple of weeks later, and they're the ones that made her report it, hence why the, the burglary was reported. But as I said, I believe that there was more to it. It's not something that a, a regular burglar would do. So... With speaking to her further, I actually learned of some other unusual incidents in her house. And this is because I'd sat with her, I'd listened, and I'd asked the right questions. And again, I'm not having a go at the at the people that had been there, the, the police that had been there, because for all intents and purposes, it was just a simple burg. Mm. Um, but I think they learned a great deal from this investigation. And it, it's about sitting and listening to people, not just going there, doing your reports and off you go. And I understand police are under a lot of pressure and they often don't have time, but I did have time. So with asking the right questions and time, I learned of the whole story, not just the snippet of this, uh, the washing being strewn in, down the driveway, for instance, on speaking to her, she said that she'd found her front door open one day. Uh, she just thought she'd left for work and had forgotten to close it. And she couldn't find this really lovely dress that she had. Nothing sort of made sense. So in my mind, at this point, I am starting to get a very different picture than it's just a burg. It just had the signs to me of so much more. So you know, in a in a um, investigation, whether it be a, a a little one or a big one, you do door knocks because door knocks elicit a lot of information that you wouldn't normally get because people often don't think it's worth going to the police about. But when you're on their door, oh well, yeah, I did I did see this or I did hear that. So in the door knock, we became aware of some other unusual incidents which these people hadn't reported either because, again, the victims couldn't make sense of it. For instance, one neighbour had found wet underwear in her drawers in her bedroom about a month previous. And a few days later, she found wet underwear left on her veranda. And she just thought... It's some weirdo. And I get that because it might be a bit hard for a female, a woman to think, oh my God, somebody's been into my house. Like, I understand you just don't want to think about it. And it was just weird. So from the door knock, we found that. We also found that another neighbour who was a, a young single mum, she thought that somebody had been laying in her bed. She just couldn't work it out. 
because she'd make her bed of a morning and she'd go to work and nobody had been in the house. And she comes home and somebody that like her bed, it's clear somebody had been laying on there. Again, what would you say to a, a police person if you did report that? I think police would think, hello, we've got one here. Or, oh, look, just ring us if anything else happens, you know, along those sort of lines. Mm. Um, one uh, house that we door knocked, we spoke to the parents of, of, of three children. And it's funny, Brent, but one of those children was this 12-year-old boy. And all I can say is there was something different. I never will be able to put my finger on it. But there's no other way of explaining it other than there was a feeling that just something was amiss. The parents were loving parents. But what we were able to identify or find out was they didn't realise almost the information they were giving, but they did say that he had been annoying a sibling to the point where they had actually put a lock on the door of the sibling to keep the brother away. And I thought to myself, really? How odd is that, that you would put a lock on a kid's door to stop the brother going in there? It just, oh, it was just so bizarre. And when I sort of questioned the very subtly, mind you, when I said to the parents, oh, you know, what's that about? They said, oh, look, he's just a strong boy. He's growing up and he's pushing the boundaries. Look, he loses his temper and he's difficult to control. By this stage, Brent, my radar was through the roof. It was just a lot of little things that were just sort of all starting to add up. And we actually established that one of the siblings had been abused by the brother. So what happens is that with um, the DHS, they used to be DHS, I don't know what they're called now, they've had um, the the Department of Many Name Changes, I think now it's the Department of Fairness and Families or something, but it used mm. to be um, DHS, the Department of Human Services. What they do is I speak to them about my concerns, and this is nothing to do with the burglary at this point, right? I'm just, I, I've come across this house and I'm concerned about this. So DHS place him out of home uh, with another family member while we sort the situation out. And the parents are very angry. And I understand that because what they see is me interfering in their lives because they believed they were managing it. But this young man, I believed he needed professional intervention and he needed counselling because something wasn't quite right. And the parents were good people, but they just couldn't manage his difficulties. But then I started to get this gut feeling that this was our stalker. This is the person that's gone and laid on this woman's bed. This is the person that is stealing underwear. It was, again, a gut instinct, but I had no evidence whatsoever but eventually, I find enough evidence to interview him formally about the abuse of his sibling. 
he, he denies it. But what we do is we organise for him to attend a program for young men exhibiting behaviours that I would question, I might almost say sexually abusive behaviours. So that was part of, oh, not bail, but but it was a program that I believed he needed and I talked the, the parents into it to say that he would be easier to live with. We can bring him back into the house, but he just needs some intervention to help with these issues. And you know what? Within weeks of doing that program, he came back to the police station and he confessed to the stalkings and the abuse of his uh, sibling. So I believe that he never offended again. But you know what his reason was for what this behaviour is that he had been watching adult pornography. But we interjected, we intervened, we got him some professional counselling. So number one, he admits he's got a problem. Yes, that's what I've been doing, but it's because I've been watching adult pornography. And that was a a huge issue to me, um, a huge admission because it had got him to the point where he was obviously wanting to explore himself and because he was so young, he didn't know how to handle that. And I believe that he would have gone on to commit a lot more serious offending, maybe even a house entry rape if there hadn't been some intervention. And I know that's jumping, a big jump, but that's my experience. That's my my belief. Narelle, it's there's just so many wonderful insights into in, into this investigation and, and your role in it, and not least of all, of course, that that early intervention of this young twelve year old on the back of identifying what we would call, in comparative terms, low level offences of of theft and burglary of underwear and this type of thing. It's probably it, it's interesting to note too, you know, when we look at age of offenders and things such as like this and their propensity to reoffend. Well, you know, I've I've done a lot of uh, research in the area of profiling of serial sex offenders, both here and overseas. You know, the the average age of a serial sex offender arrested in Australia or most Western countries in the world is actually twenty six. Average age. That's now, a long time between twelve and twenty six, isn't it's it? It's a long, to, long time to perfect to perfect your offending. There's another interesting link when we look at this too, and this you would be aware of this, I'm sure, Narelle, and, and it, it, it may be of some interest to our listeners that um, when when we apprehend serial sex offenders particularly, and then we can go back into their childhood by way of profiling and, and to try and glean as much information as we can, there's a rather well-known a trilogy, if you will, of, of signpost for sexual offenders that we find this trilogy, these three things are often present in the younger lives of these men, and they are almost exclusively men. One is uh, bedwetting beyond what would be considered a normal age for that type of thing. The second signpost is cruelty to animals. And the third is an infatuation with fire. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that 
these are often things that we discover when we're sitting across the desk from an offender who has perhaps committed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of offences. Your intervention with this young man may well have prevented him and a plethora of other people being victim to his crime. Narelle, you, you, you've mentioned a few times in this, and, and, I, and I'll just circle back about how the women that you spoke to were almost embarrassed, maybe too strong a term, but, but reluctant to do anything about this, not wanting to draw attention to the mm. situation. Could I ask from, from your perspective, from an investigative perspective, what, what would your advice be to someone listening in who's listening to this and thinking, oh, goodness, you know, I came home the other week and took the washing off the line and there was a couple of clothes pegs there and there was no clothing. And you know, I think I might have had somebody that's taken some underwear thing, but I didn't really think anything of it. What, what would your advice be to folks listening in? A couple of things. To at least tell someone, to write it down, diarise it, but also, obviously, to go to the police and they could go to the police to say, look, this is going to sound really bizarre, but there's something going on around my house I feel you should know about. And make sure the police, like, they don't have to, you know, have 10,000 police going to the house and doing all these investigations. Sometimes just to tell the police to know, so that they have it noted somewhere, mm. Um and, and look, police are going to, some police will probably say, oh, that's terrible. Look, come back if it gets any worse or give us a call. If they get that, that response, I would suggest they actually ask, could I speak to a supervisor mm. and make sure that that report is somehow noted on the police system and not by some young Connie at the desk that doesn't really think it's anything to be concerned about. The fact that the person is concerned enough to go to the police, and I understand a lot of people would think it's going to come across as sound like I'm a, a bit of a, um, a drama queen or, you know, I'm a bit sensitive. Well, so be it. But make sure people know. You know, I was mm. going to say another thing, which probably is a bit hyper security wise, but I'd probably take a photo with my phone mm. of the the pegs without the underwear. I don't know. But mm. Mm. anything to just have something to show the police. Because if the parents of that young girl that where the washing was strewn across the driveway, if they hadn't have insisted that their daughter tell the police the police would never have known that. And I mm. hate to think what that young man, or well, I said that before, I hate to think what he would have progressed to if he hadn't been stopped. Yeah. Because he was well on, in my view, he was well on the way to serious sexual offending. And possibly too, you know, if the relationship that you have and, and some do and some don't with neighbours, if you know that you've got, you know, a few neighbours that you can speak to quite openly Maybe that's a bit of a discussion to have with them as well. Hey, look, you know, I came home on Wednesday, noticed this, I don't know, is, have mm. you noticed anything? And it's, mm. and it's like you say, mm. oftentimes, you, you know, you went door knocking um, house to house 
very close to where this young offender mm. lived, you mm. found two, three or four people who had mm. individually experienced similar things, but nobody had spoken to anyone else about it. And, and we understand that because of the nature mm. of it. But maybe in listening to this interview, other folks may be more inclined to do that. The other thing that I would sort of say too is, and, and you did touch on this, if the mm. police change shift quite regularly. And, mm. and I often say to folks, if you've had the misfortune of maybe dealing with a police officer who, for whatever reason, doesn't quite connect with the concerns that you have, go back in at another time. And as you say, raise it to a high level. It's the squeaky mm. wheel that gets oiled, isn't it? And stand yeah. your ground because mm. the young person that you speak to is respectfully probably the first rung on the ladder. There's always going to be a shift sergeant, a shift senior sergeant, and, yep. and somebody a, a little higher. And if you, yeah. if you speak out, you will inevitably get that complaint taken at a higher level. Is that is that what you would say? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I was just going to say then as well, to trust your instincts. Like, if you don't think it's there's something quite right and you feel a bit uncomfortable about what's going on at home, trust yourself. You're probably right. And that's where I would persevere. And if you're not satisfied with, with the attention that you're getting from, let's say, the, the person that you initially go to at the police station, well, persevere. Yeah. Ask to speak to the supervisor. Yeah. And the supervisor will generally come out, what's your problem? I just want to make sure this is noted. Mm. Mm. If there was anybody listening into this and they're starting to make a connection possibly with that and a person that is perhaps that they know or could be a member of their family or extended family, what advice would you have for, for that person, Narelle? Again, I suppose it's about trusting your instincts. And I think parents generally have a bit of a, a radar about their kids. And if one kid is, you know, uh, acts a little bit different or they're concerned about their behaviour, there's so many professional support services. Mm. I would be thinking of going to speak to somebody about your son or your daughter's behaviour um, or your, anybody, but I would seek some professional advice. They might be able to give you some tools to work with and to sort of identify, but also be realistic like circling back to the, the young 12-year-old stalker, if you've got to put a lock on your child's door to protect them from one of their siblings, there's something very, very wrong there. And I mean, there's, yes, there's um, young kids that are, are trying to assert their authority and they're getting, you know, angry or emotional or whatever. That's normal stuff, but not to the point of, you know, that is, uh, that's just one big step, isn't it? And, you know, like, mm. do some of your own research. Like you talk about when you do your uh, sexual offending, uh, uh, you, you do research. Mm. I do research. Like, learn about it. And also, speak to the child. Talk to them. What's ever happened to actually sitting down with your kids and saying, what's all that about? Tell me, is there something that you're angry about? Talk to me. You know, there's nothing mm -hmm. you can't tell me that, you know, all that sort of stuff. Sometimes I think we avoid the most obvious, which is 
talking to the child. Is something wrong? I notice that you're getting really angry. I notice that you're in your room a lot. Have you been watching some pornography? I don't know. Just Mm, mm, have that conversation. That's the end of part one. In part two, we'll hear more about the next step Narelle took in her sexual crimes investigation career as she takes us through her experience working alongside the AFP in the Victorian Joint Anti-Child Exploitation Team, also known as JSET. If you're concerned about the thoughts and behaviour of yourself or another adult or child, there is support available. Stop It Now is an anonymous Australian helpline that aims to support adults who have sexual thoughts about children to prevent offending. The helpline is for parents, professionals, family and community members who come across child sexual abuse. If you're worried about an adult or child's behaviour, online or offline, you can call the anonymous helpline on 1800 01 1800 or use a live chat or secure messaging service. To find out more, head to stopitnow.org.au. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly. <laughs>